Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to Extra Time, a web-only sports program from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Stephen Hewson. In this week's programme, the 27-year reign of Sir Alex Ferguson at Manchester United Football Club comes to an end while the short- and long-term futures of all-whites Marco Rojas and Jeremy Brocky are revealed. New Zealand's equestrian stocks continue to rise, with Jock Padgett winning the prestigious badminton three-day event. Former Australia captain Liz Ellis tells us why she thinks only one New Zealand team will make the Trans-Tasman netball competition playoffs, and it won't be the defending champions, the Waikato Bay of Plenty Magic. Olympic kayak gold medalist Lisa Carrington takes to the water in her first major international competition since the London Games, and we hear why the country's two golf-governing bodies are teeing up a merger. The 50-year-old David Moyes has been confirmed as Sir Alex Ferguson's successor at English Premier League football club Manchester United. Moyes will start a six-year contract at Old Trafford on the 1st of July, having spent the past 11 years as manager at Everton. The 71-year-old Ferguson announced he was standing down earlier this week after almost 27 years in charge at Old Trafford, in which time he's won 13 Premier League titles, two European Cups, five FA Cups and four League Cups. His last game in charge will be at West Bromwich Albion on May the 20th. The former executive director of the English Football Association, David Davis, says Sir Alex is probably the greatest football manager of all time. Ferguson has, you know, been an unbelievable achiever at a time when the pressures on managers are so great. And when you look at the statistics of how many managers other clubs have had since 1986 when Manchester United have had the one, well, that tells you everything. The former Manchester United star David Beckham says he's been in awe of Ferguson from the age of 11. It was uh, after the uh, Bobby Charlton soccer school that I was at and I was in the finals and that was the first time I met him at Old Trafford. I was nervous and, you know, he was Manchester United's manager. As a kid, you know, I always wanted to play for Manchester United. It was my boyhood dream, so I was in awe of him and you know, I was scared of him as well. However, it wasn't always straightforward for Ferguson with his job reportedly on the line in 1990 having taken up the role at United in 1986, but failed until then to win any silverware. Clayton Blackmore was in that side and played over 250 times for United. It wasn't in a great state, uh, obviously. We were, I think we were middle of the table. You know, and we were struggling really to beat the smaller teams. We always seemed to do well against Liverpool, but uh, then they were always winning the league. In the last 20 years, the press always tried to, you know, stir things up. And uh, around about the time the year we won the FA Cup, you know, they were trying to stir it up that uh, his job was under threat. I don't think the players thought that. But uh, obviously, luckily, we won the, the FA Cup, so it got him off his back a wee bit as well. Like Ferguson, David Moyes is a Scotsman and also from Glasgow, and he's long held ambitions of coaching at the very top. But he hasn't won any major trophies as a manager which has former Liverpool player Alan Hansen questioning Moy's appointment. I honestly thought they would have gone for somebody that had um, a track record with, with, with the bigger clubs. Um, 
in the Champions League and, and winning titles. But if there was a man um, that didn't fit that category, then David Moyes is the perfect choice. One of the first decisions David Moyes will have to make at his new club is over the future of United striker Wayne Rooney. Meanwhile, the short and long-term futures of two All-Whites have been decided this week. Midfielder Marco Rojas has signed a four-year deal with the German Bundesliga club Stuttgart. It's understood the 21-year-old Rojas, who was the Melbourne Victory's A-League Player of the Year, attracted interest from several European clubs, including heavyweights Liverpool and Juventus. Stuttgart are currently 12th in the Bundesliga and thus safe from relegation. And striker Jeremy Brockie will join MLS side Toronto next week on a short-term loan until August. Brockie, who was the top scorer for the Phoenix in the recent A-League season, received a call from Toronto coach and former All-Whites captain Ryan Nelson late last week. I spoke to him after the announcement on Tuesday. Ryan rang me on Friday and asked if I was keen to stop a Wellington winter for a Toronto summer and come over and score some goals for him. So, um, yeah, it all happened since Friday and uh, got wrapped up about 10 minutes before their transfer window closed yesterday. You had no inkling that it was coming before that? No, not at all. Uh, just uh, it was totally out of the blue. And uh, as soon as uh, I had the conversation with Ryan, I was pretty keen to uh, get it sorted and uh, thankful for, for the Phoenix and uh, very excited to get over there. What were your plans otherwise over the winter? Uh, I was meant to be leaving today um, to go to Australia uh, with my wife and little girl to, to show her off to my mum my and brothers and all of her friends and family. But uh, that's obviously got cut a little bit short and I go to Townsville tomorrow for, for four days and then I head off to Toronto on Monday or Tuesday next week. You wouldn't have been playing otherwise until sort of pre-season kicked back in for the Phoenix? We were due to start pre-season uh, on the 10th of June. So... Uh, very good to be able to go over there and continue playing games and uh, and uh, developing my career. Now Toronto, uh, they're, they're struggling a little bit, aren't they, in that uh, Eastern Conference? I think they're what ninth out of ten teams. Yeah, they're, they're obviously um, yeah, not not where they want to be on the table at the moment. I, I talked to Ryan and uh, pretty much told me that they've had a bit of bad luck in recent games. I think in the last five games they've conceded. Um, a goal and, and stoppage time to either uh, draw a game or, or lose a game. So it's a matter of that much changing and uh, hopefully uh, it's sooner rather than later and I can go over there and contribute towards um, getting back to winning ways. Has he mentioned much else to you? Just simply he wants you to, to play as you were for, for the Phoenix? Or? Yeah, pretty much. Obviously he's, he's kept an eye on um, what I've done for the Phoenix this year in terms of scoring goals and uh, our season didn't finish that long ago so I'm still reasonably fit, so I'm uh, looking forward to getting over there and hopefully I uh, can continue that momentum of scoring goals um, for Toronto. Now you're there till August. How far through does their season does that take you? Their, their season finishes uh, the middle of October, so um, yeah, I'm there uh, till the end of August. So I'll miss the last six weeks of six weeks or so of their season, but um, get me back in time to uh, to meet the new new coach of the Phoenix and. Um, frame with them for the last six weeks leading up to our season. And what do you know about Toronto? Uh, I played there in 2007 at the World Cup, uh, under-20 World Cup with uh, with the New Zealand team, obviously. I played a cup, two games actually at Toronto's home stadium, so uh, it's a nice nice city and uh, obviously going over there for the summer season as well, so it's, it's even better. And have you played MLS before? No, first time, so it's the first time I've played uh, a 
or will be the first time I've played a professional game outside of the A-League. So I'm really excited about the opportunity and uh, very grateful for both Toronto and Wellington for, for allowing it to happen. I suppose, too, another chance to strike your stuff on, on, a, on a different stage and because yep. the profile of the MLS, that, yeah. that certainly won't hurt your career. Yeah, exactly. The profile of the MLS is, is definitely worldwide. They've got some big players playing in their competition and uh, there's a lot of people watching watching the MLS. So also it gives me um, a chance to carry on the momentum leading up to our uh, all-white games in November as well, obviously. So uh, those are two pretty important games. So it's, it's one win for everyone. That's Phoenix striker Jeremy Brocky, who's off on a short-term loan to MLS Club Toronto. You're listening to Extra Time, a web-only sports programme from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Stephen Hewson. New Zealand's equestrian stocks continue to rise after Jock Paget won the prestigious badminton three-day eventing title in England this week. Paget was a member of the New Zealand team that won a bronze medal at last year's Olympics. Another New Zealander, Andrew Nicholson, has been in top form recently, winning two of the Grand Slam events at Burley and Kentucky, and he finished third at badminton. Paget beat Michael Jung after the German dropped the rail on the very last show-jumping fence. Morning Report Simon Mercip spoke to Paget immediately after the competition and asked him how his nerves were standing up. Ah, uh, yeah, they were all right. I, I, I had a practice round on my other horse, Puss and Lush, and you know I, I had a good idea of what I needed to do, and I had a feel of the time. And uh, Thomas was jumping well, and you know for for once he he walked into the show jumping, he was very relaxed, and um, you know all I had left to do was put him in front of the jump. He was jumping so well, I. You know, I, I didn't. I didn't know I would jump clear, but I felt like I had a very good chance. Has it sunk in yet? Oh, not yet. No, I mean it's just been one thing to the other. I'm literally just um, about to load the horses now and head home. So the drive home will help it sink, sink in, I think. A drive home. So I guess that means you haven't had a chance to have a wee uh, victory drink yet. No, no, that will have to be done a bit later, I think. I don't know if you know, Jock, uh, but the only other rider to win on debut was uh, a certain Mark Todd. So that's not bad company to be in. No, I know. It's very cool. It's um, good, sh- good, good man to follow. Absolutely. And speaking of who you beat on the day, of course, there was a lot of interest and focus on how Andrew, Andrew Nicholson might go and whether or not he could possibly you know, get the grand slam. Any slight tinge of um, uh, sympathy for him? Yeah, I mean, Andrew is, uh, you know, one of my all-time heroes, and he's done so much for me. Without Andrew, uh, this would not be possible for me, and definitely I wanted Andrew to win the Grand Slam, um, you know, but I was there to win first, and, you know, if if I didn't win, then that would have made me very happy to see Andrew win. I, I was disappointed for him, but, um, you know, you know a- Andrew would have done exactly the same thing, and you know, that's what we go there for. What did he say to you after your victory? You know, I think he was one of the happiest people for me. He was, I think he was the first one to come up and he had a big smile on his face and, yeah, he seems very happy. He's a great man. And along the way, of course, Jock, you, you beat into second place the Olympic, world and European champion, the German, Michael Jung. It's not bad going. Yeah, he, um, he's a great man too, actually. I trained with him in Munich over over the winter and, um, you know, a great time with him and his family and I worked very hard with his father and they put a lot of effort into me and I actually um, really appreciate what they did for me as well and um, you know I guess everyone's beatable aren't they and it's just trying to have 
the best day on the right day. And unfortunately for Michael, you know, there's, there's you know, I, I haven't seen the round yet, but it sounds like he just touched the rail and, you know, it, it was all a game of inches because I won by 0.3 of a fault and, you know, I'm sure an extra inch he probably wouldn't have touched the rail. So, yeah, it was just uh, unlucky for him and lucky for me. Sure. Now tell us about what your your plans are now. Are you looking ahead to possibly the Olympics? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, there's a lot of things on the way. Um, the next four-star I'll be doing is Burley. Uh, sorry, Le Moulin, um on some less experienced horses, but um, hoping for a good run there. And then we go on to Burley at the end of the year, which is the same level as this. Um, and then the World Championships is the next championship, which will be October next year. Um, and, and, yes, always focus towards the Olympics. But that, that's another three years away for now. Of course. So the horse that you've won with here at, ba- at Badminton, um, Clifton Promise, I understand he's getting on a little bit. Is he a possibility for Rio? Yes, I hope so. He's he's um, he's a tough horse. He's a he's a full New Zealand thoroughbred, and and they're bred very tough. And you know, I'm hoping that he will give me another Olympics. That would be great. And just very quickly, for people who perhaps aren't so familiar with your name as with some of the other New Zealand equestrian riders, how does a former bricklayer get to be a badminton champion? Oh, oh. I don't know. Sit on good horses. <laughs> um, sur- surround yourself by good people and try your best. That's badminton champion Jock Paget talking to Simon Mersep. The former Australian netball captain Liz Ellis is predicting just one New Zealand side will reach the Trans-Tasman playoffs and it's not defending champions, the Waikato Bay of Plenty Magic. Following the Magic's loss in Adelaide recently, Alice is all but writing off their chances of retaining the title. At the halfway stage of the competition, Australian sides fill the top three spots, and Alice told Bridget Tunnicliffe the draw will help a New Zealand side make the final four. The top New Zealand teams of Magic and Pulse uh, just aren't quite good enough. And I look at Magic, and I think people have underestimated the loss of Juliana Naupu. Um, I think... Uh, Jess Waitafu did an okay job, but when Van Dyke and Laura Langman get shut out of the game, Magic don't have anyone in that wing attack, goal attack position to step up across that transverse line and do the damage. And you need sort of at least three world-class players in those positions, and Magic simply don't have that. So I think that's, for them, not a matter of you know Australia and New Zealand. It's a matter of the quality of the people that they've got playing there. Uh, and I think for Pulse... They've got the sort of team, especially that front line of Wilkins and Thwaites, that would take it to the Australian teams for a half, but their fitness just lacks. And you can see they're fading out of games. And, again, that's not an Australian-New Zealand thing. It's just what what they are. They just, they just lack match fitness. And the intensity, I think, that the game has been taken to this year means that you've got to have everybody at a super fit level. Do you think there is a risk only one New Zealand side might make the top four or even worse... I think the Magic might miss out, but I think their, their spot will be taken by Pulse or Steel. Uh, so having look at, a look at the draw for the remainder of the year, uh, I do think that Firebirds, Vixens and Thunderbirds will be in that top four, with the caveat, of course, that Firebirds and Vixens have got to play each other twice, so they will take points off each other and maybe bring uh, each other back to the pack a little bit. But having a four-point break so early in the season between those two and then the fourth-placed uh, Magic is a little bit dangerous. When I look at the remainder of um, the draw, I don't think Fever will make it. They've got too many games uh, against the top Australian teams. So I think, uh, you know, you can quite safely say that they won't make it. So that last three spot, the, la- the last spot,
spot, that fourth spot, I think will be fought out between Magic, Pulse and Steel. And I just look at the Magic draw and I think they're going to do it pretty tough. I think Pulse of Steel and Steel are probably the best placed uh, to take that last fourth spot. And I think it will be Pulse. Interesting. So um, Van Dyke was benched in her understudy in the Silver Ferns, Catherine Latu, has been benched in the Mystics' last two games. Do you think from, from a Silver Ferns perspective why Tamanu may be a bit concerned about our shooting stocks? Uh, look, I think why are we having a really good look? Uh, Irene has been the go-to girl in that shooting circle, and I'm loath to say this because I'm a massive fan of Irene Van Dyke, but her time might be drawing to a close at this elite level. She's been shut shut out of the game a couple of times this year by um, some pretty sort of tenacious defence. Um, but she, I do, I sort of say that with a huge amount of reservation because I think if you stuck a world class goal attack in front of her, like Maria Tutayer, then you get a different performance from Van Dyke. Uh, I think uh, Kat Larson is the sort of player who thrives in a, a successful environment, and I look at that Mystics team and I think there might be some more issues there that we're not seeing uh, off-court issues. So I just don't know that that's the right environment for her to be doing well in. So, uh, you know, put those two in the Silver Ferns lineup, and they become very different players. Outside of Van Dijk and Lata, you've got three import players wearing the goal shoot bib in the other New Zealand franchises. Does, do you think Netball New Zealand needs to do more about trying to develop the next generation of New Zealand shooters? They probably do, and I think you'll probably find Australia are in the same boat. You know, the, the best goal shooters uh, in Australian teams at the moment uh, Carla Borrego is <laughs> Ramilda Aiken, uh, two Jamaicans. So, you know, we've got two out of five where, uh, you, know, you know, we've got a bit of work to do in our goal shooters. And then when you look down, I think that Caitlin Bassett's having a bit of an indifferent sort of year. She's sort of blown hot and cold. Uh, then Karen Howe is the standout, but she's got some trouble with her knees that may really hamstring um, her progress up into the Australian team. Uh, and then for the Swifts, they don't really have a world-class shooter sitting in that area. So I think both Australia and New Zealand have got uh, you know, some planning to do around that goal shooter position. And that other position, though, the goal attack position in Australia, I mean, you've got Nat Medhurst, Erin Bell, uh, Susan Pratley, throwing the names Tegan Caldwell and Sherelle McMahon into the mix. You compare that to New Zealand, um, Maria Tutaia, possibly Jodie Brown. New Zealand, we're a brittle at the moment in that area. Yeah, and you know what, I think New Zealand has been brittle in that area for a long time. Uh, Maria Tutayer is, a, I think, a great goal attack, but what you haven't had for quite a number of years is that really short, sharp, dynamic goal attack that does a heap of work out the front. And you're right, we've got that in spades. You know, there's Pratley, there's Medhurst. I thought Nat Medhurst was just outstanding on the weekend uh, in their match against the Fever. Tegan Caldwell is doing beautifully. Sharon McMahon, I mean, what a luxury for the Vixens to have her on the bench to, to bring on. And uh, Lisa Alexander may have the very same luxury. So, yeah, you're right. I think that goal attack position is probably the bigger concern for New Zealand at the moment. That's former Australia Nepal captain Liz Ellis talking to Bridget Tunnicliffe. You're listening to Extra Time, a web-only sports programme from Radio New Zealand Sport. The Olympic kayak gold medalist Lisa Carrington will compete in her first international competition of note since her London success when she races at the first World Cup event of the year in Hungary this weekend. The New Zealand team only arrived in Zizid in Hungary a few days ago and this event's been used to get over the jet lag and get back into racing mode ahead of the second and third World Cup events later this month. Among the New Zealand team is a young men's K4 1000 lineup with all the paddlers under 23. Former world champion Ben Fui is also competing in the K1 1000 
while a new pairing of Olympian Tennille Hatton and Rachel Dodwell will compete in the women's K2500. Canoe Racing New Zealand's high-performance manager Grant Restall told me the Hungry Regattas a step into the unknown. One of the things we find very hard in the first year back from Olympics is often a lot of the teams, as, uh, as even New Zealand has done, some of the teams retire. And so especially in the team boats, you get new combinations forming. And really, uh, sometimes they're experimental, sometimes they're uh, serious contenders. Um, so it's a little bit hard to really gauge our expectations. And it's also dependent on who turns up to which event. So we're expecting World Cup 3 to be the most competitive, as after World Cup 3 they have the European champs, which they seem to be regarding more importantly in Europe because it's a selection event for their world champs. So we're not sure of the level of competition there and and also the new new teams. So an evasive answer, I guess, but uh, that's the reality of the situation. So we'll have a, a better feel after we've attended World Cup 1. Lisa Carrington's obviously the the, the, the big name in, in the wake of her Olympic gold medal, but she's not actually in the... Um, she's competing in the K1 500, isn't she? Lisa is doing uh, K1, her, her, um, her favourite event, the K, K1 200, and she's also doing the K1 500. The 500 is first up on, on day one. The 200 is late on the third day. So is she looking, is 200 going to remain her specialist event, or is this a, a, an indication that she's looking to move into the, the 500? 200 definitely intending to be her favourite event. She's looking to move into the 500 as well. So the real focus is on the 200 for Lisa, but just having a look at uh, at the 500 option as well. And you'd expect Lisa Carrington to be this, the strongest performer in the in the Hungry Regatta anyway? Yeah, I, I think Lisa will be the strongest performer right through. Um, certainly got the pedigree, so uh, we're expecting her to perform quite strongly right through the, the World Cups. Her coach, Gordon, and her are looking at trialling a few things. She's very aware that she needs to keep improving, and to keep improving you've got to got to chance your arm a bit. And what's she looking to do? Lisa's looking for some opportunity at the start so in her race plans especially in the 200 um, her start's not the strongest leg so that's one of the areas of weakness in her racing so she'll be trying to tighten up in that area and just continue her um, overall anaerobic part of the race, the midsection of the race and uh, improve there as well. We all know that she's got a strong finish, so um, won't be complacent about that, but that's we're trying to target some of the, the weaker areas of her race. I imagine she's more of a target now too. Definitely, and the pressure comes on, Lisa, you know, to perform. Um, there's really only one way for her to go. You know, once you've hit the top, there's, there's nowhere else to go, and you become the target. So um, that, that applies pressure, and... Um, her and her coach Gordon Walker have been working through all that and she seems to be uh, well prepared and ready to race. I was talking to Canoe Racing New Zealand's high performance manager Grant Restall. You're listening to Extra Time, a web-only sports programme from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Stephen Hewson. The two organisations which govern golf in this country, New Zealand Golf and the PGA of New Zealand, are planning to amalgamate. The two bodies have signed a heads of agreement to explore the establishment of a combined governing body. It arises from a memorandum of understanding signed by the parties nearly two years ago 
in which they agreed to work together to create a long-term vision and plan for golf in this country. The chairman of New Zealand Golf, Paul Fife, told Barry Guy that both parties believe merging will be in the best interest of the sport. There's a lot of positives in doing it. Rather than deem it as something necessary, there are an awful lot of positives about doing it. And if we can work together and you know make the merger work, remember, we've both been around for about 100 years. We're different sizes as, as far as the... Uh, as the bodies go, um, we, you know, predominantly look to the amateur. They look solely at the professional. Um, but bring them both together, I think you'd have a very strong body, and that's what we're going to work through over the next, you know, eight to ten months. So uh, economics as well as perhaps what's best for the players? Uh, economics, we, we, you know, uh, I don't think it'll change a hell of a lot what's for the, for the players. I mean, we're... You know, they run a great tournament uh, down at the uh, at the hills in Queenstown that John Hart uh, has organised for them. Um, and, uh, you know, they've got a great tournament going there. We've got the New Zealand Open going. You know, can you run two big tournaments a year? All of those things to look at to see, where, you know, what comes out the other end and can we agree that one body is the way forward. Uh, so what would be the future of... New Zealand's top events. Uh, how how would it be affected? Well, I can't speak for for, for the VGA. Um, you know, that's one of the things we're talking about that at the moment as well. You know, should we have two? Should we have one? Um, you know, those discussions are ongoing at the moment to see. You know what would happen in, the, in that in the tournament arena. We'll certainly continue to have amateur tournaments. We're certainly committed to the Charles Tour. Um, you know, we've had a New Zealand Open most years for the last 107 years. So, uh, you know, it's part of the discussion as well. It's a, it's a healthy discussion. And, uh, you know, if we can find a way to, to emerge in April next year, perhaps, uh, I think, uh, you know, that would be a good result. Uh, you don't sound convincing that there is a place for any more than one professional tournament. It's a money thing, isn't it, really? I mean, it's... Uh, it's a money thing. It's a sponsor thing. I mean, we'd be running a tournament, and our uh, we'd be running our uh, Open in Christchurch with great uh, great um, uh, sponsor support, with great Christchurch City Council support. Uh, you know, we've just got to look at the future and say, how can we continue to run these as we go forward? And that's nothing new to what we do each year. We sit down and look at our plan, our business plan, uh, for the ensuing 12, 24 months. So, what do you see as the priorities for emerged organisation? Well, I think the priority is to work out how we can merge, and if we, can, you know, if we can merge, uh, my own view is if we, for some reason, we, you know, and I don't know that there would be any reasons that we couldn't merge, we should then immediately work on a very strong strategic alliance because I think, you know, it's the best interest of everyone that we do work together. But as I say, you know, there's a lot of work to be done. There's a subcommittee that's been established. Uh, it's got about nine months' work in front of it to go through all the issues, have a look at the due diligence side of it have a look at the finance side of it, and then uh, make some determinations towards at the end of this year and uh, and take it forward to our respective members. I do feel very confident that we will work together in the future, whether it's an emerge, as a merged body or work very strongly you know, in a strategic alliance with them. Uh, the, uh, the merged body being the preference. What changes could the country's golf clubs perhaps expect to see in the next few years? Well, they could get a lot more support than they get at the moment, you know, from a one body that enhanced the pros. If we look at the 350,000 and say our long-term plan is to try and get 
a large number of those people to join clubs. And one of the ways to do that, maybe to get the PGA members a lot closer to those people in terms of, you know, three, four lessons. Uh, it'll help build the PGA Pros book and it'll help get people into the game and it'll help make the sport healthier. That's the chairman of New Zealand Golf, Paul Fife, talking to Barry Guy. And that brings us to the end of Extra Time for another week. Remember, if you'd like to contact us, you can email us at sport at radionz.co.nz. I'm Stephen Hewson. Bye for now. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.